We ask you, our God, to remove from us everything that would cover over, that would hide, that would blur, that would dim the glory of Christ as revealed on the pages of Scripture, that would reveal your own glory as we consider again the time of the end, the things that you have prepared for the end of this age before you bring in the next And we confess to you our dependence, not only to understand spiritually, but to respond with worship and obedience and faith and to grow by the very word that you've given. And so we look to you to do all of those things in us. And we pray this in the matchless name of him who died and rose again for us. The name of Jesus. Amen. Open your Bibles this morning to Matthew 24. Matthew 24, verses 32 through 35. We've been away from this passage for a while, and now we're returning again to complete it and consider these wonderful truths. And again, this is a, this is a glorious passage. It is the longest and most detailed explanation given to us by the Lord Himself concerning His return concerning the things related to His second advent, to His return from the right hand of the Father to establish His kingdom on the earth. Now, as we've noted in the past, Jesus is here giving an answer and response to questions from the disciples mentioned back in verse 3 of chapter 24. They said, tell us, when will these things happen? After He had just mentioned about the destruction of the temple of Jerusalem. And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus, in answering their questions, begins with the last two first and essentially, more or less, ignores the first one. And in His explanation then of these last things, the end of the age and the sign of His coming, He's essentially unfolding the prophetic week that was first revealed in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. And in there we learn of God's specific plans for the end, the final days, of His people, Israel, the Jewish nation. And specifically, it ends there with a week yet to be fulfilled, which the Lord is describing here, in which He will bring both great destruction as well as salvation. It is a time that will involve the rise of the Antichrist, and end with the establishment of His kingdom here on the earth. The kingdom promised to Him. The kingdom promised to Him as the Son. The kingdom that is to be revealed. Now in Luke chapter 21, Luke records for us the same conversation, but he has a different emphasis. And in verses 7 through 24, Luke focuses on the Lord's response, really, to the first part of the question regarding the destruction of the temple of Jeru- in the Jerusalem, Herod's temple. The destruction, as we're well familiar with by now, that came in 70 A.D. in which God utterly decimated the temple area and brought the destruction that He anticipated and that He proclaimed would come because of their rejection of Him. 
Now the main point this morning is this, or in mentioning that, is that the hope of the coming of the Messiah, what's really encapsulated in all of this, the hope of the coming Messiah and the establishment of His kingdom on earth was a central hope of the Jewish nation. It was a central hope of the nation of Israel. Indeed, we looked at a part of that in the last previous last two weeks in the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7, really the whole Chapter uh, section there, beginning in verse 1. But in verse 6 and 7, the promise that one is going to come, he's going to be a human, he's going to be a man, he's going to rule on David's throne, and yet he will be a man who has divine characteristics, who goes by the attributes and names of God himself, and he is one who's going to come as the Messiah and establish the Davidic kingdom, and he will do so forever. And so they anticipated that. It was central to their hope as the Jewish nation. And indeed, he did come the first time. What the disciples did not realize was that there was going to be an interval between his first coming, when he would come in suffering and humility to pay for the penalty of their sin, and his second coming, which we both await. So the return of Christ is central to the hope of the people of God. And it's central to our Christian hope. It sets the framework for our worldview. How we look at things. How we understand culture and the world that we live in. And every aspect of living in this world. The return of Christ is a catalyst to our Christian life. To the things that we do. To our love and obedience and life of faithfulness to our Lord. This, however, sadly is not the case for many Christians Maybe some of us who tend to be more focused on this world. So before we begin our look at our passage this morning, I want to take a few moments and I'm going to mention eight reasons why the return of Christ is so central and how it is so important to our hope and to our spiritual life as Christians. Now I'm going to do little more than just list them and mention a key verse that explains it. But I want you just to hear, and this is not an exhaustive list, but I want you to hear from these eight things the way that the return of Christ and the anticipation of His coming to establish the kingdom should affect us as a church, should affect us as God's people. First is this. It exhorts us to pursue godliness, obedience, and love for one another. Listen to Paul's words in 1 Thessalonians, and you can write the verse down. I'm just going to read it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 12 and 13, he says this, May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you, so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all of his saints. It exhorts us to pursue godliness and obedience and love. Secondly, it teaches us to live soberly, to live spiritually alert, sober-minded. 1 John 2.28 says this, John does, Now little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from Him in shame at His coming. In other words, by having a life that is flippant and superficial or disobedient, but live with the awareness that we will stand before Him, as Paul said, the judgment seat of Christ, and give an account for our lives. And we want to receive His coming with joy and not with shame. Thirdly, it instructs us to grow in our love of things eternal and not the things of this world. It's the 2 Peter 3.10. Since all of these things, speaking of 
everything in this universe, since all of these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for and hastening the coming day of the Lord or the day of God? In other words, as we anticipate His coming, it reminds us that His coming is going to involve in the end a destruction of all of the things that we see. Therefore, we should live for those things that are eternal, not for the things that are temporal, not for the things that are passing. Number four, it teaches us to be patient with injustices in this world and not to despair. To be patient with injustices in this world and not to despair. Listen to James Words in James chapter 5, verse 7 through 8. Therefore, he says, Be patient, brethren, until the coming of our Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Number five, it keeps us from getting too discouraged at the condition of our present world, the pride of the wicked, knowing God will be glorified and justice will be met on the earth. In other words, it reminds us that evil does not have the last word. Second Thessalonians says this, chapter 1 and 2, Dealing out, he's going to come and deal out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day, later he says, speaking of the the Antichrist and his kingdom, then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. In other words, wicked kingdoms and wicked regimes and wicked regimes and wicked rulers will be destroyed and justice will be met by the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So we should not... Be overly disparaging. Number six, it teaches us to not put too much hope and stock in the leaders and governments of this world. There is only one true king who will sit on his throne forever, ever. All others are temporary. This is especially important as we consider the elections that are coming up, which are important. It's important for Christians to be involved, but it's important that we keep it in perspective. Matthew 25, 31 says this, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and with all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before Him to be judged. He is the only one who has an eternal throne. Number seven, it encourages us in ministry because it assures us that all our labors and our sacrifices, every hardship endured in service, in service for Christ is not in vain. In other words, nothing that we suffer here in service for Christ will go unrewarded. Listen to Paul at the end of his life. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who love His appearing. 1 Peter 5.4, Peter says this, When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And he says that to a church who is suffering for their faith. Number eight, and lastly, it gives hope by reminding us that our battle with sin will be finished and we will, by God's grace and His coming, realize every promise of salvation that He has made to us. Listen to the words of the Hebrews 9.28. 
So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await Him. Our salvation is near. 1 John 3.2 says this, Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not appeared as yet what we will be, but we know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is and everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. The point is, is that this is not simply a doctrine to check off or put us into a certain camp and to identify us with a certain camp. It is, in fact, truth that was the the life breath, if you will, the the constant anticipation and hope of the people of God, particularly a suffering people of God, and the apostle as he lived in constant expectation of being with the Lord, and so should we. Live in hope of His coming, hope of His kingdom and His glory and being with Him. That is what drives us. It's what puts everything in perspective. It's what compels us to obedience and compels us to live lives that are pure that we want to present to the Lord who is returning. It keeps us from being overly dismayed at the wickedness and the rise of wickedness in our own nation that we see and in the world constantly knowing that the king will sit on his throne, the true king. Now, in our passage this morning, Jesus teaches us to learn discernment and be confident regarding the signs of his return. And he does this, as he often teaches us, through a parable. So I'm going to read our passage, and then we'll note the parable, the point of it, and the promise. Let's read first, beginning in verse 32, and then we'll read through verse 35. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize that He is near at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Let's note first then the parable. The parable that fig trees tell you when summer is near. It's a simple parable. It's a simple illustration to the people. Having just explained to us the details of the event of His return, His coming in the glory of the Father with the angels to call His elect and establish His kingdom, He now, with this parable, makes a transition to what will really occupy Him all the way through the end of chapter 25, which is essentially then applying the reality of His return to the people of God, to His people, teaching them how they should respond, how it, the effect that it should have in their hearts. Namely, here then, the emphasis is on the spiritual discernment and preparation that we are to have. So again, he teaches us then this in a parable. Not so much a story, but imagery that he will use to make a spiritual point. And so he says, learn from the parable, or the parable from the fig tree. And notice here, by learn, he's not simply telling us to consider the analogy. This isn't... Of course, learn in a simply or merely intellectual sense, though we must understand it. The idea is that we would understand the meaning of the words, that we would consider it, that we would take it to heart, that we would gain wisdom from it, that it would affect our faith, that it would translate into obedience and trust. 
And as he often does in these parables, he uses imagery and customs that were well familiar to the people. Fig trees were very common in the land of Palestine. And in fact, they were common, interestingly, all the way from the beginning of creation. What is the one tree that's mentioned in the Garden of Eden besides the tree of life and so forth? It was the fig tree. It was from the fig tree that Adam and Eve pulled to cover themselves with leaves to cover their nakedness because of their sin. So this was a common tree, one that figures prominently throughout Scripture. And it's noted for its physical and its symbolic features. Let me just mention some of those to you. Physically, this fig tree, left uncultivated, could grow to a height of anywhere between 25 and 30 feet. So pretty tall. And it could produce fruit for as much as 10 months out of the year. So it was primarily known as a tree in itself for its fruitfulness and for its large leaves that produced shade in the hot Middle Eastern sun. In fact, when we meet Nathaniel in John chapter 1, we meet him how? He's sitting under a fig tree, no doubt cooling himself from the evening sun. However, because of its physical features, it was used often as a symbol, something to picture spiritual truth. It pictured, for example, God's covenant relationship with His people in Hosea 9.10. But particularly, it anticipated times of peace and prosperity. And particularly, this time of peace and prosperity that is coming in the eternal kingdom that is anticipated by His people. Listen, for example, of Micah 4.4. He says, each of them, anticipating this future kingdom, each of them will sit under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one will make them afraid. In Zechariah 3.10, he says, in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and under his fig tree. So it, it told of a time of prosperity and peace. It also foretold judgment. In Luke 13, he uses a fruitless fig tree as a picture of God's patience towards His people and also a warning that His patience has an end and that if they don't bear fruit like a fruitless fig tree, He will in fact cut them down. In Matthew 21, we, ran, we were met with the picture of a fig tree when Jesus saw a fig tree that had leaves but no fruit as He was entering into Jerusalem and he cursed the tree and it died because that fig tree was a parable in a sorts of the outward religious life of Israel's leadership that failed to produce spiritual fruit. And here he uses the fig tree again, but this time he uses the growth cycle of the, of the leaves on the tree to picture the nearness of his return. And so he says, learn from the fig tree when its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. And again, this would be common to them. They would have known the cycle of the fig tree. In fact, the fig tree was one of the few trees in the land of Palestine that actually lost its leaves. Most of the foliage there are actually evergreens, and so they, of course, stay green year-round. But not the fig tree. Around the time of December, it would shed all of its leaves, and then somewhere around the time of April and May, late spring, its tender shoots would push forth, and the new leaves for the new season would come. And so it told the people when they saw the leaves that summer was near. Summer was near. It was something obvious from a child to an adult. And so it becomes an inapt illustration to make a spiritual point. As you can look at the fig tree and know that the summer is near, so you can observe the signs preceding His return and know that He is near at the door. 
So notice secondly then his point. The point of it. Namely that these signs show you that the Lord is near. Verse 33, so do you too, when you see all these things, recognize that He is near at the door, implied right at the door. As you can discern the coming of summer, so you should be able to discern His return by the signs that He says will precede it. And we have to ask a question here, what are then all of these things? What are, what are the things that we're to be discerned? Well, it cannot refer to everything that he just talked about in verses 29 through 31, his return, because at that time when he returns, he's no longer near, he's actually arrived. He's not talking about his arrival, he's saying those things that precede his arrival, those things that are going to be signs of his arrival. Nor can it refer to the destruction of Herod's temple in 70 AD, a point we've labored to show throughout verses 4 through 28. The focus of Matthew's record of Jesus' words are on the end of the age, those things that are yet to come. What is the the things that he's referring to then? Well, it's everything he just mentioned between verses 4 all the way to 28, things that we've been looking at. It means the wars and the rumors of wars that are going to mark this final week of Daniel. These heightened sense. Yes, there's always wars and rumors of wars, but there is a heightened sense of it. There is a unique sense of it that will come upon the world. It's the global persecution and apostasy that he talked about in chapter 9 through verse 13. And the global preaching of the gospel in verse 14. It's the rise of the Antichrist that Daniel anticipated that will be seated in the holy place. It'll be the rise of the evil one that is then going to turn and unleash a great tribulation on the people of God, the nation of Israel, and the the nation of Israel. All of these things are the signs that will precede His coming. These are the things that they're anticipating to begin. Remember that these are... Look at verse 29. These are the things that will immediately precede His coming. In other words, there's not a long interval of time, but know that when you see these things, He is near. He is at the door. He's coming. His, his presence is soon to be revealed. Powerful imagery here. This idea of being at the door. Of course, it, it speaks of His nearness, of His closeness to the, the, the future timing of the events that He's anticipating in, in His coming. Now, some of you might have translations that say either it is near or He is near. Probably more accurately, it is near. But the difference is merely semantics. These are all synonymous events. In other words, Christ is near when the event of His return is near. And when, the event of his ret- when Christ is near, the event is near. So the Christ and the event of His return are all the same thing. The, the substance of it, however, is Christ. Of Christ and His return and His presence here on the earth. And He says, when you see them, He is at the door. At the door. Now, what is a way that you can illustrate the the sense of this passage? I think one way that occurred to me is it would be kind of like if you had a a family member that was traveling from a long distance and throughout the course of you know that they're coming and they're getting nearer and nearer as they travel. Sometimes if you're like us when we travel, we'll call and let them know at different points that we're on the way and there's a, a growing excitement as we get nearer or somebody else is getting nearer to our home. And it's a climactic and a heightened sense of anticipation when you realize that they just pulled onto your neighborhood 
or your street, or if you are told that they're standing right at the door. All of a sudden, for some of us, there's a frantic uh, effort then to make all the final preparations or to get everything ready for them to come in. And that's the idea here, is that when you see these things, you know that He is right at the door, He's standing there, he's, His presence is very near, and He's soon to be revealed and to establish His kingdom and bring about everything that will surround His coming. Now there is for all of us in reality, according to Romans 13.1, Paul says, For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. In other words, it's always nearer to us. He's always nearer to us in a very real sense. Every day that goes by, His return is nearer to us. Yet, for those who are alive at the time of the rise of the Antichrist, the judgments of God, it can be known that He is nearer still. He is at the door. He's at the door. And let's note lastly here then the promise. What is the promise of this? His promise is essentially be assured that these things will take place. Be assured that these things will take place. He says, truly I say to you. It's often used by Jesus before making a statement of seriousness, of spiritual solemnness. In other words, listening. he's He's engendering us to listen more closely. It's something he wants us to have to take with a sense sense of spiritual sobriety and earnestness. In this case, it's a declaration, or or better, a declaration of the divine certainty of the events he's just spoken about. Events that we would do well to meditate on. But he says here in verse 34 Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all of these things take place. Now, before we can understand the the nature of the promise, we have to ask the question, to whom is He making the promise? Who is He making the promise to? To whom does the parable of the fig tree specifically apply? That's the question. In other words, who is this generation? Who is this generation? Well, it's been interpreted in a variety of ways. One of the most famous, or you could say infamous ways, was by Hal Lindsey. Some of you are familiar with that name. He wrote a book that actually was greatly used by God in many ways. Many people got owe their salvation to the book, The Late Great Planet Earth, where he talked about the coming of the Lord and the destruction that was coming to the world at the end of the age, the return of Christ. Now, according to Lindsay, he bases his teaching in the book largely on this parable of the fig tree. And according to him, then, the fig tree refers to the nation of Israel. But not just the nation of Israel generally, but the nation of Israel when they're gathered back into the land and recognized as a nation in 1948. Therefore, he takes then this generation as a reference to a period of 40 years. And so then, by his calculations, Jesus could be expected to return sometime when? 1988. 1988. That was going to be Jesus' return to the earth. And so many people took that to heart and as they have from prophetic teachers all throughout the ages. But he was clearly wrong as they all have been. So one way to take this, however, is to say that he's referring to the nation of Israel after they became a nation in 1948. But that's clearly wrong. A second option is to see it as referring to the actual generation hearing Jesus' words. In other words, some will say it refers to that generation, the one that heard Him speak these words to them. And of this uh, interpretation, there are two groups. The first understands the events of, 24, of verses 4 through 28 as referring to the destruction of Herod's temple that we've already mentioned. 
But as we've labored to show again, that there's no way to make those events fit the global nature of destruction and the prophecies of Daniel to fit anything other than the final seven years where God will uniquely pour out His wrath on a rebellious creation. There's no way to make those specific events fit anything other than the tribulation period mentioned in Daniel or Revelation chapter 6 through 19. Again, he says that those are the events that will happen immediately before his return. And that is, in fact, in 29 through 31, his return to this earth. Not his return to destroy the temple, but his return to establish his kingdom. And these are events still anticipated by Paul in 2 Thessalonians, anticipated by John, as we mentioned in Revelation 16. By the way, more than 20 years, or about 20 years after the temple had already been destroyed. So he can't be referring here simply to the destruction of the, te- the, the that generation in their anticipation of the destruction of the temple. And there's a second group that takes it as that generation solely. And these simply assert that Jesus was wrong. He was wrong. After all, Jesus was human, wasn't he? And human beings are wrong all the time. And so Jesus was wrong. They base this in part on verse 36 that will begin next week, where he says that the Son of Man doesn't even know when these things are going to take place. So if Jesus clearly was limited in his knowledge, then he clearly could have made a mistake. He sincerely anticipated that it might happen during this generation, but he was sincerely wrong. That's one Anticipation, and not always only by liberals. You'd be surprised at some who would hold that. However, there is a great difference between Jesus acknowledging that he, during the time of his first advent, was limited in the knowledge specifically of when these future events would take place, and saying that he was actually giving information that was wrong. Those are saying two utterly different things. And if we were to allow that, to say that he makes wrong guesses, then it really makes his statement in verse 36 nonsensical. Why would he say that he doesn't even know, no one knows, only the Father in heaven, after he just said that this generation will not pass away? Indeed, that's a nonsensical interpretation. And most importantly, however, to understand it as simply a mistake, that it was that generation, but he was wrong, would accuse him of error. And it would threaten everything that he says. Every word of divine scripture would then come under question. And Jesus could no longer be the way and the truth and the life, but merely a more enlightened human teacher than others, which is blasphemy, which is blasphemy. A third option says this, that this generation refers to the kind of generation that Jesus was speaking to. In other words, it refers to the current unbelieving generation of the Jews present at the time of Christ and listening to his words and that would continue all the way to the end of the age. Now, this is somewhat plausible, I believe. Since the whole discourse, even beginning, even the prophecies of Daniel 9, are focused on the nation of Israel alone, or primarily. And that is used, a generation is used that way in Scripture. It's used positively to speak of the spiritual characteristics of a people. For example, in Psalm 14.5, when he speaks of the generation of the righteous. The generation of the righteous. In other words, that righteous generation throughout all generations who display the characteristics of righteousness. 
In Psalm 24, 6, he uses it that way. He says, such is the generation of those who seek him. In other words, these are the characteristics of every generation throughout the ages that are marked by those characteristics. And so it refers, can refer to a generation that bears marks of righteousness and faithfulness to God or of unbelief, of unrighteousness. In fact, Matt, Jesus is going to use it that way four times in a similar way throughout the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew 12 and 16, he refers to an evil and adulterous generation that seeks for a sign, that rather demands a sign while ignoring the ones that are given to it in the very person of Christ. In Matthew 12, 45, he refers to them as an evil generation steeped in self-righteousness and blind to the things of God. In Matthew 17, he refers to an unbelieving and a perverted generation that failed to exercise true moral and spiritual discernment in relation to his person and ministry. And so this generation that he's speaking to is a generation that's corrupt, they're unbelieving, they're spiritually blind, and they rejected the clear evidence of their Messiah. And so it's possible that he's referring to them by the character of that generation, which actually is not... Unlike what he said back in, just listen, 2335, when he's speaking to that present generation. And he says to them that on they, he says, whom, speaking of Zechariah in the Old Testament, he says, Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. In other words, it wasn't them, of course. That had happened many generations before. But you, you are of the same ilk. You are of the same spiritual corruption. You are of the same blindness. And so he speaks to them in the present tense as if they were the ones who had actually committed the crime. So it's possible to understand this. It's in the realm of possibility to understand this as characteristic of that generation that will continue out through the end of the age. However, I think that's not the best way to understand it. First of all, let me just mention a couple of reasons. The singular of this term is consistently used and most often used to identify a people of a certain time period, and that's probably the case here. And moreover, although the generation that he's speaking to would see the foreshadowing of this future event, the destruction of the temple and the destruction of the temple, they would not experience the events themselves and they would not experience the reality of the fig tree promise. He is at the door. That is reserved for the generation alive at the time of Christ. So a fourth option, and I believe the correct one, is to see this generation as a specific reference to the generation that is alive at the time of His return. Jesus has just given the parable of the fig tree, making the comparison between the appearance of the leaves and the corresponding events of verses 4 through 28, after which, immediately after which, He will return. In other words, that's the generation of the budding leaves, the budding fig leaves. That's the generation who sees the supernatural judgments of God, the rise and destruction of the Antichrist that will experience the climatic end of the age. In other words, that generation, that generation who sees it, that generation who experiences it, that generation who is alive at the time of these events, that's the generation that will not pass away. In other words, because... When they are alive and see those events, the events will happen quickly. They will happen soon. He will return. They will experience it to the utmost. That's the generation. The generation when He returns. The generation who will experience all of these events. And that's actually why 
He says in verse 35, or gives the assurance at the end of 34 and 35, of the reality that His Word will, in fact, be accomplished. That it will be accomplished. Because time has passed. The promise hasn't been fulfilled. These events have not happened. His return is not happened. It's still to come. He spoke these things and that generation died and another generation and another generation and another generation up to our very day. It passed away. And so therefore some could claim that he was wrong. He was mistaken. He didn't understand fully. As a matter of fact, in 2 Peter 3, 4, just listen, don't turn there. He says this, that's the kind of mocking that's going to characterize the the age. It certainly characterizes our age. He says, and some saying will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. He's delayed. He hasn't come. Can His promises truly be trusted? Can His word truly be trusted? He's taken so long to fulfill His Word. And so because of that, He gives an oath. Essentially a divine oath. When He says, truly I say to you. He's confirming His words. He's confirming, yes, the Son of Man may tarry long because God is patient. To use the words of 2 Peter, He's patient towards you. Not wanting you to perish, but all to come to repentance. Yes, He may delay in His coming, but it is His coming is certain. It is sure. It will happen just as He promised. He will bring His kingdom. He will establish justice. He will come in the glory of His Father and with the angels to be glorified in by His saints. He will come in and He could give, he will come and He could give no stronger statement about the certainty of His words. He says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Verse 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And he uses the strongest possible language and the strongest possible imagery that he could. The prophets of old proclaimed, thus saith the Lord. They claimed that over and over and they spoke with divine authority. And then Jesus comes along and says, I say to you, my words, my words will not pass away. Don't miss what this implies about the person of Christ. This is a statement of divine authority. A statement of divine authority that actually goes well beyond the certainty of the events, but is a statement of the divine authority of the Word of God, not only Christ speaking them, but the very gospel that records these words for us. And so therefore, all of Scripture, every word of Scripture, breathed out by the Spirit of God, it is a statement that could be made legitimately and truly and sincerely and rightly only by one who speaks with divine authority who is equal to God Himself. God alone brought heaven and earth into existence. He alone sustains them. He alone has determined their end. God alone could make a statement like this. It's a foolish statement in the mouth of a man. And certainly, as some would want to think, one who could make a mistake, one who could be wrong in any word that he said, in any syllable ever uttered by his mouth, there was no possibility of error. He speaks with divine authority and divine truthfulness. 
In fact, John informs us that it is He, the eternal Word, who was speaking to them then, who brought all things into being, and apart from Him, nothing has come into being that has come into being. Hebrews reminds us, the writer does, that it is this eternal Word, the Son given, who sustains all things by the Word of His power. He says that the heavens in Hebrews run will be rolled up like a mantle, but His years will not come to an end. And the Word of God abides forever. So I want you to notice here that when He speaks, He speaks with divine authority. You want evidence piled on and piled on as to the divine nature of Christ? These words here testify. Heaven and earth will pass away, but My words will not pass away. It is, in fact, a part of the fulfillment of what Isaiah anticipated when we looked at last week. That he is wonderful counselor. He, he brings not only divine wisdom, but the divine word of God. He is the mighty God. He is the one alone who could speak then the words of God with the authority of God and as God. And as I mentioned, it's not just these words here. And I think this is really the ultimate encouragement. Remember, he's, he's doing this to solidify to them that look... Time is going to pass. People will mock. You can lose faith in the promises that I have given to you, but be assured it will take place. And I assure you because of my own divine authority. And it's true not only for this promise, but for all of Scripture. All of Scripture. And I would ask you, do you have that kind of confidence in God's Word? Do you read it with the absolute divine certainty of the living God Himself who is speaking to us? You know, this is a great encouragement in my own heart. If you think about this, everything on this earth, every, everything is not only going to be done away with, but everything can fail. We can be disappointed by anybody at any time. We can be disappointed by anything in this world. We can have anything we hope on in this world can fail. It can fall apart. It cannot come through for a variety of reasons. The only thing that we have in this entire world that is absolutely 100 certain, absolutely true, no error at all, is the Word of God and everything contained in it. That's the only thing. Everything else can fail. Everything else can disappoint. Everything else will crumble. But the Word of God does not fail. Never can fail. Impossible. When we open the pages of Scripture, we have access to the mind and the authority and the Word of God so that we can bank everything on the Word of God and our hope in it. And that's exactly what He's encouraging these disciples with. It's what He's encouraging us with. That this is a divine word. It is a certain word. And we are to hope in it. And by our understanding, we will show by whether we get anxious when world events happen. When disappointments come because of what we politically wanted to happen. When there's a rise of evil and it seems like the the tides of righteousness have passed and now it is a wave of unrighteousness. We have the divine word that tells us these things. That explains us these things to us. That gives us hope. And we sing about this, one of my favorite hymns, I'm sure for many of you too, how firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in His excellent Word. What more can He say to you than He has said to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? 
What more can he say? What more can he say to instruct you? What more can he say to encourage you? What more can he say to exhort you? What more can he say to give you comfort and hope in whatever you're going through in life or to teach you how to live righteously? What more can he give to us than his divine word? Nothing. Nothing. As a matter of fact, we who know him have said we base our entire lives, we're banking our soul, we're banking everything on what He has told us in His Word, the trustworthiness, the truthfulness of Scripture. We base our entire lives, our soul, our eternal future. It's on the foundation of Scripture that we know what is true and what is wrong, what is damaging and what is good, what is eternal and what is temporal, and on how we are to live. Man does not live on bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Just a way to picture sort of the permanence of the word is is an interesting illustration I heard, and we're going to end with this. He says this. uh, One gives this story. When the Reverend, we'll call him Reverend Z. I don't know how to pronounce it. Uh, He's from Poland. Reverend Z received an honorary doctorate at Whitworth College in 1984. He told the story of the almost total leveling of the downtown Warsaw at the end of the Second World World, World War. Only one skeletal structure remained standing on Warsaw's main street, and many devout Poles considered it a kind of shrine. The badly damaged structure was the Polish headquarters of the British and Foreign Bible Society, and the words on its only remaining wall, out of all of the rubble, one wall standing, and the words on its only remaining wall were clearly legible from the street, and it said this, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And what a picture of the divine word of God. All of the the creation will be rolled up like a mantle that will pass away. The glory of the flesh rises and it goes. All of creation will be destroyed, but the word of God abides forever. And it is on this word that we stand. And so as he's transitioning into the application of his return to his people, he's reminding us that be assured it will take place as everything that he has revealed for his people and for his future plans. Rest on it. Do not be dismayed. Do not be overly discouraged. Think often on it and live in obedience and love. Live in anticipation. Live in purity. Live knowing that your salvation is nearer today than when you first believed. And not only do we have the certain foundation of His Word, but we have the regular reminder of His coming, of His return in the Lord's Supper that we'll celebrate now. As a matter of fact, Paul tells us that in the Supper, we proclaim His death until He comes. We proclaim His death until He comes. So when we gather together as His people and we remember with these elements the cost of our salvation and, we also, and all that the benefits that we receive from that of the new covenant, we remember also that He is returning. That He is returning. That He is coming. And we say with, we say with the words of Revelation, Come, Lord Jesus, come. We say it with anticipation and we say it with hope. And as we read at the beginning, acknowledge that it also reminds us of a certain sobriety and a seriousness because it reminds us as we come before the Lord in His table and think about His return and His sacrifice, 
Remind us also that our lives are constantly before the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. And we will present our lives to Him. And so while we rejoice, we also examine. And so the encouragement is to examine your lives. See if there's anything in your life that you would be ashamed of right now to present to the Lord if He were to return this second. Is there anything that would cause you shame in the light of His glory and His holy presence? If so, deal with it before you take those elements. If there's any question about knowing Him and you about seeing the reality of His life in your own, then don't take the elements. Let them pass by. But if your life is pure before Him, you could present a life to Him without shame at His coming. And you do, though not perfect, deal with your sin immediately and want to walk and can pursue walking in obedience with Him out of your delight in Him and fellowship, then rejoice, rejoice in this reminder of all that He's accomplished for us. So let me pray and then Ruth will play and then the men will pass out the elements. Father, we thank You for the testimony of Your plan and Your purposes, Your testimony of everything from beginning to end, where we came from, why we're here, why things are the way they are, but most gloriously and wonderfully of Your salvation in Christ our Lord, of Your coming, of Your work, of Your person, of Your defeat of death, and here in our passage of Your return. Give us hearts that anticipate it. Give us hearts that not only acknowledge it in our minds, but feel it in our hearts and our soul every time we come to Your Word of its sufficiency and authority. Help us to rest solely on everything there and to hunger and thirst for divine truth as we hunger and thirst for You. And I pray now that as we take the elements of your table, that you would encourage us with these glorious realities of the accomplishment of our salvation and the certain reality of your return to come and to take us home. We offer this time to you. Do your work in us, Holy Spirit, according to the will of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.